Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, and especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Larissa Levicheva. She is professor of Bible and a specialist in Old Testament studies at Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. My colleague and a regular guest on this show, as you all know. And our text this week is Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on so that others can benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Laura. All right, let's get started. Uh, Jumping into Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Uh, Laura, would you be willing to read the passage? Yes, absolutely. What version do you bring today? What do you have? Oh, I'm sorry. It's common English. Oh, okay, good. Fun. Okay. So, Moses was taking care of the flock for his father-in-law Jethro, Midian's priest. He led his flock out to the edge of the desert, and he came to God's mountain called Horeb. The Lord's messenger appeared to him in a flame of fire in the middle of a bush. Moses saw that the bush was in flames, but it didn't burn up. Then Moses said to himself, Let me check out this amazing sight and find out why the bush isn't burning up. When the Lord saw that he was coming to look, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, I am here. Then the Lord said, Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, because you are standing on holy ground. He continued, I'm the God of your father, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I have heard their cry of injustice because of their slave masters. I know about their pain. I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians in order to take them out of that land and bring them to a good and broad land, a land that's full of milk and honey, a place where the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites all live. Now the Israelites' cries of injustice have reached me. I have seen just how much the Egyptians have oppressed them. So get going. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I to go to Pharaoh and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you, and this will show you that I'm the one who sent you. After you bring the people out of Egypt, you will come back here and worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If... I now come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors have sent me to you. They're going to ask me, What's this God's name? What am I supposed to say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. So say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. 
God continued, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how all generations will remember me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord God, creator of all things, and the one who established a covenant with your people Israel, you are the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And in this hour, as we come before this text, this story of your veiling and unveiling of yourself before Moses in response to the cries of the people and in faithfulness to the covenant you initiated. Uh, We dare to ask that we would be guided by your spirit to hear your word afresh. We would not be so uh, impertinent as to ask for Lara and I and all our listeners to be as Moses before a burning bush. And yet, nevertheless, we do dare to ask boldly yet humbly in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would be attuned to what you have to say to us even now by this word of old. For you are the God of the ancestors, also the God who hears the cries of your people, and the God who will be who he will be. So we entrust ourselves to you during this hour to guide us. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So what's grabbing you a fresh classic text? Of course, you've spent a ton of time with it over the years. What's what's grabbing you today as you were uh, reflecting on this text? Well, I think it's a good example, again, of the Hebrew narrative, where the narrator presents some information and then allow the character to discover that information on their own. So as we look at the, you know, very first verses, we read that uh, in verse 2, the Lord's messenger appeared to him in a flame of fire in the middle of the bush. So we already know, right? The narrator knows so, and he lets us know that that's God's messenger, and later on it's, you know, God himself. But then we get... How Moses sees that, right? Moses saw the bush was a flame, but didn't burn. And then he has this curiosity about it. Why don't I come close and check it out? Hmm. So it's that's that's how Hebrew narrative works, right? We already know everything that's going on, but the character has to discover for himself um, what we already know. Yeah, so, that's really good. I feel like you've pointed that out before when we've talked, and I feel like this is almost a because it's a familiar story and because that little beat where mm-hmm. in verse three, where it says, Hmm, I'll turn great to see this. seems uh, again in more modern English or wildly more Western narrative style, that little beat might not be there. Mm-hmm. And so it stands right. out. And so it's really nice to be able to say that this is, 
That's that's it's it's actually really helpful. Verse three is almost the narrator saying, "Remember, he doesn't know. We right. do." Right. Because <laughs> yes. the moment he says that, you're reminded, "Oh, okay, we know, but he doesn't." You know, so it's almost like this text is almost like perfectly designed to teach that rule. Right. You know, because <laughs> which is easy to yeah. forget sometimes in other contexts where the narrator is not always constantly like pointing out to us the ignorance of right. <laughs> the character. The character has to find out. For, yeah, for <laughs> that's really helpful because that always did strike me as a sort of uh, a somewhat unnecessary beat. Like, obviously, he turned aside to look at it. Why does he have to have direct discourse there? Moses right. says to himself. Does it actually say he says to himself? Or is that just helping out? Yeah. In reader? verse 3, Moses said to himself. Yeah. Just because the one I happen to have just says, and Moses said, um, know you know, <laughs> I was asking only because, yeah, it doesn't say necessarily doesn't to himself, himself, I don't think. My ESV doesn't have that. And that's why I was wondering. And I don't think I see it, right? Yeah. Uh, Ashura, right? Not to himself, right? So that's the beginning of the discourse, right? Right. So I will turn. Yeah, but that's, that's even true. better because it's almost like he looks at the camera. I mean, I'm being silly here, but it's almost like he turns to the camera and says, I'm going to check this out. You know? Right. <laughs> but it really draws attention to the moment. And what's interesting is that then God responds, yeah. right, to Moses coming closer because Moses could have looked and moved on without coming to the yeah. bush, right? So there is this, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's a, right. So it raises God the is question: How many, how many, uh, how many Israelites <laughs> over the last four hundred years has he attempted to call? Right, right. It, it yeah. invites that question, right. uh, though it's an unanswerable, it's a counterfactual, conditional, and yet it, I think the the story almost invites it because it's almost like here, here's a sign. Right. Are you going to respond? It says four, verse four. Four. There it is. When Adonai saw. That he turned aside to see, God called to him. Yeah, so Moses could have seen it and just like, oh, okay, cool, and keep going, right, without coming closer. So it's quite an interesting story, I think, because we know it so well, and because we've read it and heard it so much, we think, of course, that was the only thing that Moses could have done. He saw it, and of course, immediately they. The bush started talking to him, but no, there is There's that. a little pause. There's a little delay. Right. So this phrase, and then he said, here I am, um, mm-hmm. which of course we're going to hear this a lot more. Is that just, would that just be a stock phrase in yes. Hebrew dialogue? It doesn't necessarily have the, is it just kind of what you say when someone calls you? Like, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. like, here I am. Right. Okay. Uh, what's more important is that God calls him twice, Moses, Moses. Okay. So this is a uh, common device in Hebrew when it's double. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, listen, like, it's for surely I'm calling you. Like, it's the way the parent would maybe use the middle name almost. I mean, maybe, I, it, maybe. Which doesn't always mean you're in trouble. It could just mean something right. serious. It, right. it gives yes. it a solemnity, to yeah. use an old-fashioned word. <laughs> I love the look on your face. Slim tea? What's that? <laughs> but yeah, I'm serious okay, about Moses, that. Moses, so. Moses. Yeah, yeah, okay. Listen. Yeah. Here I am. I, I was just thinking because we, we hear this one again, right? Samuel says this. Right. 
Isaiah says this, and I was trying to think if this is the first, which I know is a big, a big thing in rabbinic exegesis. What's the first time somebody right. says something that, that has a certain, um, I'd have to go look that up, but I just, yeah, I, I I'm not having, although remember right now. the odds of that being somewhere in the, in one of the Abraham stories are likely, but how about this yeah. as a podcast special? Like, Hey, if you find, <laughs> if this is the first, great. That's true. Let us know. If not, you know, yes, would be just, good. uh, Tweet at me or whatever, you know. But I <laughs> more <can't>... interactive. <laughs> Go ahead. But I can tell you what's used uh, in this passage for the first time. Oh, what's that? Is the word holy. Oh, 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 oh! So, I didn't know um, that. Oh um, my! Holy ground, and uh, the Hebrew, it's um, it's the ground of holiness. It's used uh, a little bit differently. So um, holiness is uh, actually the yeah the word yeah, here. Oh, that comes second, right? Yeah. So it'd be at the end of at the end of five, right? Um, yeah, yes. End of mm-hmm. five. So yeah. right here, there's um, kodesh yes. right there, and yes. the dash. So and that is ad. Oh yeah. So the adam. Yeah, adamat. Adamat. Kadesh. Right. So, so Adamat is a construct state. The land or state or ground. Right. And then Kadesh is holiness. That is the um, the main word in this uh, phrase. Hence the dash and the, or mm-hmm. is that, it's even in the grammar of the way that right. Adamat mm-hmm. is, because uh, it's right. ending it's in with the, the. It's an in construct state. So, okay. Yeah. So it's actually the ground of holiness. So holiness is more important than yeah. ground. And it's interesting. It is the first time that I like ground used. of holiness better. That because it makes it sound <laughs> right. like there's ground, and then there's some of it's more holy than others. Whereas this is kind of like by flipping around, it really highlights right. The only- even the fact that it's the mountain of God, which is total giveaway. Like you said, a narrator style, but he doesn't know this is the mountain of God. It's no. just some mountain, right? right. It's just Horeb <laughs> to him. Right? Yeah, it's just Horeb. That's what it's to him. So he may even go know by that- a different name at this point. I don't know if it's been. Right, I'm but trying to think, it but. becomes Sinai only right. in chapter 19. So Horeb would have been the Midianite name for it, probably. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. But oh. yeah, holy is the first, the word holiness is used here for the first time no wow. in in the in the Bible. Before that, in, uh, I think it's Genesis 38, where it's Judah and Tamar yes. story. So Judah calls Tamar a holy woman mm-hmm. or woman of holiness. But that's a reference to a temple prostitute. So holy there is not the same as holy okay. here. Gotcha. So they do not count that holy as the the use gotcha. in Genesis so a, a as sacred, real. a sacred woman or something like that. Right. Yeah. So okay. in reference to God and holiness, that is the first. So is thirty eight the here. actual first use of the the actual like the, root word, like the stem, right? But in a different Kadesh, but in a different okay, in a different like although kind of fascinating non, in its own way, non godly. Yes, um, although youth. all the more fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So the first first time it's uh, in the mouth of God. First time mm. it's used to refer to um, the presence of God. I mean, right. a sacred space. All yep. the kind of uses we're used to with holiness in the back half of Exodus and Leviticus. Correct. The kind yep. of Levitical notion of holiness. Yes. Is introduced here for the first time. Wow, that's cool. Ground of holiness. So when it speaks of this as the mountain of God, again, narrator knows that. Moses doesn't yet. 
And we can't really know this, I suppose, for sure, although there might be hints in the larger story and patterns. Was this, as it were, already the mountain of God? Uh, is this already a ground of holiness? Or is are we supposed to get the impression that the act or event of God appearing is what kind of turns this into the mountain of God? And these are more foreshadowings to say, this is the mountain of God, to what, which you have heard of before, that we'll get to later. You catch what I'm saying? Right. Maybe it's, is it implied one way or the other? Because of Hebrew narrative style, as you've told us, right. the opening lines are kind of, there's, there can often be foreshadowing or kind of common knowledge after the fact being brought in to the framing. Right. Um, so in ancient Near East, any mountain or any hill of any kind, significant height, uh, was considered a place where a god Okay, so would there's a god rest. on every mountain. So the question is, which one? <laughs> yeah. So because it says the mountain of yeah, is that, the Lord, Mount- so that's well, a portion. One, it's not. It's just it's just gods, right? It's just Elohim, right? So, isn't it? To Horeb, the mountain of God. Yeah, Elohim, plural. You know. Yeah. So any a godly god. mountain, a mountain of gods. Right. <laughs> but in a way. It is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Okay. Because that's the same mountain that will turn into Sinai. In, yeah, and um, the foreshadow, the foreshadowing becomes explicit later when he right. says, you will come back and worship slash serve yeah. God on this mountain, which also might be. Yeah. We haven't heard that verb a lot either uh, no. <laughs> in and, Genesis. And there is a um, similarity in um, the word for bush. Mm-hmm. Here, which is Sene and uh, Sinai. Oh. So that can be, you know, the alliteration that's very common in Hebrew as yeah. well. That's it's the mountain of the bush. <laughs> <laughs> which is how it's referred to in, in that famous uh, encounter with the Sadducees in the Gospels when they right. when Jesus refers to this, do you not know the law in the story of the bush? Right. Mm-hmm. Is the kind of way that this is... Right. And and I am I correct that in I mean this would be true in all interpretive traditions, mm-hmm. but there tended to be kind of stock ways of referring to these stories, like the Akadah was the kind of Right. Mm-hmm. And so to a Hebrew speaker to refer to it by Sana is already to, right. to signal, you know, Sana that happened on Sinai, right? <laughs> I mean there's a little bit of uh an auditory connection there. Yeah. And even uh Moses in his uh final speech in Deuteronomy, refers to God as the one who speaks out of the burning bush. Oh, oh so my goodness. So he, he refers, instead of saying God, but the one who speaks out of the burning bush. So right. it's quite quite interesting in Moses' story, he starts with a burning bush, and then he refers to the burning bush at the end of his story, so like the nice inclusio yeah, bookends and, and for like, his story. Likely intentional given the, the right. developmental history of Deuteronomy to kind of signal a kind of enclosure, right. inclusio from Exodus to Deuteronomy. Oh, that's really cool. And that definitely, that actually fits with kind of this deeper, one of these deeper questions that this text is about the naming of God. Because that's another right. way, that's mm-hmm. like a name of God that could be set aside along all these other right. namings. So with that, let's take a quick break and come back and uh, and dig in a little deeper, do some interpreting. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. We're looking at Exodus 
chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, and I'm here with Larissa Levichapa, and yeah, we were making some observations and chasing down a couple different bunny trails, and I'm sure, I mean, you always have lots of notes and ideas when you come, and we might not be able to get to all of them. I know I want to, I really want to drill you about the name of God here, if you're okay <laughs> to talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, well, just, how about this? Riff on it. T- t- mm. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts about this uh, exchange in 13 to 15 and the sort of various ways that the Lord dances around his identity with Moses. Anything you'd like to share about that in particular? Um. Yes. Well, Moses starts with, who am I to go? Right. And then he says, uh, what is, you know, what, what is your name? As if the elders might ask, yeah. even though we know they never do. <laughs> right. Nobody ever asks for the name, yeah. which is quite funny. <laughs> so the question is really, who Poor does Pharaoh, not? Nobody. Nobody, right? <laughs> nobody cares. <laughs> there's no. locusts. There's there's blood in the, the river. That's all we notice. <laughs> so the question is really, who does not know this God or about this God? And it seems mm. like it's Moses. Oh. Because... When Moses comes to the elders, to the Israelites, they don't ask who this God is, even though they've been there for 400 years and most likely have forgotten a lot. Yeah. But somehow it doesn't cross their mind to ask for the name. Huh. So again, we don't know why, but probably because there is some continuation of faith or telling stories of what happened earlier with the you know, with the ancestors. So we don't know. But it's quite clear that Moses doesn't. Yeah. Because he's he's he keeps asking all those questions. Well, in the beginning, later on in chapter four, it's more like excuses, you know, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's good, but you know, send somebody else. So he um when he starts with who am I to go, it's clear that he is afraid of this God. Yeah. But he's more afraid of Pharaoh. He's afraid of the God that he's talking to because he hides his face. Right, his face, afraid to look at God. Mm -hmm. So because of the um, common concept that, you know, you can't look at God and remain alive. Mm -hmm. And also because in ancient Near East, you never look at the king or the suzerain. Right, that's just a posture of humility before, uh, more powerful person. And um, he really doesn't know much about this God at all. And what's interesting is that the fear that Moses has before the God, before the God he's talking to, God himself does not say, oh, I don't care, you know, like, don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. But rather, acknowledging the fear that Moses has, he says, but I will be with you. Mm-hmm. Right? I understand that you're afraid. Are you afraid of Moses? Uh, sorry, of, of Pharaoh. You're afraid of Israelites because of your past. But I will be with you. So it's a very interesting thing that's happening here. The fear that Moses has is now God is trying to replace in a with a belief. Yeah, even the sign that he offers is you know this is a sign I'll give you that after you've done it, you'll come out here and worship me, as right. if to say like you know. The sign right. isn't going to come right away. I mean, he gives them some, eventually he gives the leprosy. Right, that's probably a that. good year uh, or yeah. so in between that. 
And um, that doesn't happen quite uh, often in the Bible where God promises a sign. Yeah. Uh, but he gives him a promise, I will be with you. And, yeah, which uh, is powerful because you get the impression, because if I'm remi- remembering correctly, although Moses and, and Aaron will, they'll have these conversations with Adonai throughout the, the plagues sequence. Right. Um, the Lord said, or Moses mm-hmm. said to the Lord and all that. Um, we don't have these direct apparitions or theophanies again until they return to the mountain. Correct. Is that correct. Mm-hmm. Am I remembering yes. that right? Yes. And it, yes. It, it, and again, it's one of those things where just like the text is very familiar to us. And so we miss some things in the same way, our own sort of default modern Western God concepts are so familiar to us that we tend to import those into the text. Right. So we just know, well, obviously God's omnipresent, right? <laughs> but like, that's, that's actually, that's actually a surprise to learn that over the course of the, <laughs> the canon, right? right? Actually, it's assumed, no, he like lives on that mountain, right? right? Now yes. he's so powerful that he he transcends that. So he's able to talk to Moses apparently while he's in Egypt. Right. But there's no, it's not that he like, apparently doesn't hop in some divine chariot and come visit him there. It, it, and there's some sense he's run. It's you get the impression, at least as I've read it throughout the plague sequence that Adonai is kind of stationed on that mountain in Sinai and kind of just, as it were, kind of throwing these missiles into, <laughs> into right. Egypt. And, and it's actually a demonstration of his power that he doesn't have to come, you know, come and do it himself. He's able to just bring these plagues upon Egypt. But there's a sense, an important sense in which they need to come out and meet him. And the whole narrative of the, the smoke that comes down and enters into the temple so that he now is kind of with them in the tabernacle. Right. Say tabernacle. Yeah. The tension of that narrative doesn't work if you're just like, yeah, he's on the prison. You know, like it's assumed he lives on the mountain. So for him to right. like move from the mountain into the tabernacle is a big deal, right? Yeah. Is that- <laughs> well, yes. In the ancient Near East, the understanding of gods was always geographical. Yeah. Right. So the God lives only in this place. Um, the story of Jacob and Laban, when, yeah. when Jacob and, um, his wives run away. Um, they take the gods with them. Rachel takes <laughs> right. takes the gods. Yeah. And now Laban is suddenly so upset that that's actually a very good example of what people thought about God. Yeah. So it's not that gods are still powerful where Rachel has them. No. They have to be in Laban's house. This is very geographical. Yeah. So yes, exactly what we're learning in Exodus through this all these stories is that God is powerful. While he's on this mountain yeah. where Moses met him, he's actually able to do something in Egypt. So that's that's a revelation that the people are learning. Yeah, there's right? almost nothing in Genesis other than the creation story, but I mean for the characters. Right. There's right. nothing in the character that the characters experience that would give them the impression Oh, that, right. that this is how God operates. You right. know, it, it, All the learning is that he's personal. He communicates. Yes. But but pretty much but, almost exclusively within the boundaries of the promised land is where those right. communications usually happen. Right. Interesting. Yes. So. Wow. So that's a that's a big shift. Yeah. <laughs> the God of your fathers. So so what is God's name? Is it I am? Is it the Tetragrammaton? Y-H- WH, is it the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob? 
It's this phrase, this is my name forever. The antecedent of this is not, is it the whole phrase? Is it, is it his proper name, Yahweh? Isn't it kind of fun? I mean, I assume that that's yes, purposely, it <laughs> it's purposely uh, evasive. Yeah. I mean, am I taking that right or am I reading? Oh, yes. No, 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 no. Yeah. Uh, there's so much written about it and nobody really comes down on anything in particular. You just, because this is a possibility. We need to remember that Hebrew is a, a language that has only consonants. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the way you will vocalize the name, right? They vocalize the consonants by adding vowels to them will determine what you will do, right? So it's it's quite interesting. But also in fourteen, where it says, "I am who I am," it can be translated as, "I was who I was. I will be who I will yeah. be." It's you know the the context determines the um, the tense, so to speak, right? When this happens, yeah. So in a narrative, when you use a verb like that in the third person describing someone's action, the the narrative context will tell you what tense to take it in. But when right. someone's just speaking in response to being asked their name, it's super confusing, right? It's right. like it doesn't. <laughs> it so, really does work in any in yeah. any tense, right? right. Which, in a way, is how a name works. The name is your. It's the name you used to have. It's the name you have, and it's the name you will have. I mean, in a way, it's. Uh, you, you can see why the rabbis came to even call him Hashem, the name, right. as as a mm-hmm. good code word for this. Uh, yeah. So, and when he, when he calls himself, I'm the God of you know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's you know the God of those who who have come before. Mm-hmm. I'm your God and I'm a God of those who will be mm-hmm. in the future, right? So I am the God who is with his people. Yeah, by naming all three of those, he's signaling a, a continuity of a right. community throughout time, right? And I'm not just the private God of Abraham. I'm the God of the right. children of the, Abraham right. signified by these three names. Yeah. Which is how he introduced them in the very beginning. That's it's. It seems like if God... In verse 6, you know, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of funny when he asks for his name, because at the end of God's answer, he reiterates that name. The God of your father's, right? God, right. Mm-hmm. Almost as if to say, I kind of already told you my name. <laughs> like, that's the most important thing is that I'm now is the reason that at least within the narrative that Moses is, is a little disconnected from the identity of God. Is this meant to be a function of him having been raised by the Egyptians that he's kind of alienated from his Hebrew religion? Is that, is that at least within the narrative? Is that what seems to be? Yes. And then doubly so living out in the wilderness with the priest of Midian, which would be a whole other religion. Yes. (laughs) So yeah. He's kind of doubly removed okay. from from his people. And I mean, as far as we that. know, he was, you know, worshiping Ra and all the, I mean, he was just doing, right. the, doing the religious thing of the Egyptian life. And we know that he wasn't circumcised. Right. So he actually I, wouldn't, I don't even, know. They, he they, wouldn't even be permitted. Well, they wouldn't know because they don't know the rules yet because <laughs> God hasn't given them yet. But... <laughs> Well, they know, that, they know that they need to circumcise well, but the they, boys. I was going to say they, they wouldn't have to. 
he wouldn't even be welcomed when they would gather for worship. And I said, actually, they don't know what the rules for worship are yet. That's Leviticus. <laughs> right. But when uh, when the Pharaoh's daughter picks him up, he just picks up a boy. Right. Right. It's not a Jewish boy. Right. That's why he was accepted and right. was uh, raised in the palace. We always think, you know, he was a good Jewish boy. And from the beginning, yeah, the, uh, uh, the Pharaoh's daughter knew what she was doing. Yeah. That's not true. Yeah. She just picked up a boy, a baby boy that she uh, that she sees in in the water and raises him as her own, but fully yeah, fully accepting him as most likely as the Egyptian boy. Yeah. Yeah, and the so only then, way to to uh to recognize a Jewish boy would be by circumcision exactly. and that hasn't happened. Wow, yeah. And so which which is why this scene that that's that's coming up of the circumcision of his sons and with Zipporah is such an important yeah. kind of moment because it's his right. kind of return fully. Right. Yeah. So so you, it sounds like you're saying even though he has some sympathy for his people in the scene where he kills the right. Um, there's nevertheless a kind of alienation even all the way into his adulthood and then. His time yeah. out in Midian, it's, I mean, the narrator wants us to know he's, you know, his yeah. father-in-law is the priest of. So he knows as little as possible. Yeah. Wow. About this guy. So he's kind of, he's, he's, he's about as pagan as a Hebrew can be, is what I'm hearing you yeah. kind of say. Yeah. Which is so actually he, really significant for how we understand this story. Right. He does know who this God is. He doesn't know that he needs to circumcise his children, which is. You know, these are the two most important things, right? For the, it's like this uh, perfect for the Hebrew in, people. It's like this perfect <laughs> inverse with, with the story of Saul, who comes to be known as Paul, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like where he's the kind of, the Jew of Jews, the best possible, right. you know, and it's him who gets interrupted with a vision of God. Right. And called to serve the Gentiles. Whereas you get this, you know, about as pagan as a Jew you right, could get right. being called to be the savior. I don't I never thought of that kind of inverted parallelism between Moses and Paul till yeah, till yeah. till you said Me neither, but well your uh your analysis kind of brought it to mind, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh of like I was trying to think like who else was you know, this is so I, I thought of like this kind of yeah, this this bringing in to the covenant. I was like, oh, it sounds like you know, sounds like the whole message of Paul's Theology, you know, right. I'm like, oh, but his experience is almost like inverted <laughs> from Moses's in a way. And Moses is already in the story out of his comfort zone, right? He is very far at the edge of the desert. Basically, uh, the narrator is letting us know that that's not a common place where he would go uh, with his right. sheep. But, you know, it's most likely, I don't know, that's what we uh, can, can say from this passage is that God has him where he wants him to be, you know, outside of his comfort zone. He's no, he's not connected to his Hebrew relatives. He's really far from his Median relatives, right? right? Out in the desert where God can actually talk to him. Talk to him, not so that he wouldn't have to. So it says the be. west side of the wilderness. Yeah. Is that, is Midian more to the east and north when I think of like, the way Sinai Desert yeah, is laid I would out. Think so. Does that sound about right? Right. Man, I missed that. I missed how far he was from 
Yeah. From his, even his new home. So he's alienated. So this is a story of displacement all the way through right. triple now. Yes. Displacement from his Hebrew identity into an Egyptian life of privilege. Right. Alienation from that in his yeah. moment of solidarity with his original people. Right. And then into Midian. And then now he's a little bit, I mean, right. it, a little bit of distance and displacement is just part of the gig for being a shepherd, but still right. he's in a strange place. Yeah. And because you said displacement, uh, what's, uh, what I wanted to uh, mention also is that when God talks to him, he says, don't come any clothes, take your shoes off and then come in. So taking the shoes off is a, an invitation into somebody's house. Like when you come ah. to somebody's house, you will take the shoes off. So God in this moment, acts towards Moses as a very hospitable yeah. host. Come into my presence. Come to me. And um, taking, you know, taking shoes off is is a sign of respect towards the uh, towards the host. Well, even now, I was in in India uh, a couple of years ago, and every time people would come to the platform to preach. Mm. Or to speak or give a testimony, they would always take their shoes off. Ah, so that that is still part of many cultures. That's and the it has the religious of, overtone as if God is now about to right. move, and so yeah, huh. and it's inside, and it's in the church where we know God is everywhere already. But still, but still coming to the you know to the platform of the pulpit to preach. That's an added significance to being in uh, on the holy ground yeah holy of holies so uh, yeah ground of holiness right so god invites Mo- like moses is displaced he's an alien everywhere but now god invites him into his space oh and that's beautiful i'm just i'm getting excited by everything you're saying if that's okay sorry did i cut no, you off no no no, no, no. <laughs> where i'm like Especially because we talked a little bit about presence and omnipresence mm. earlier. And you could tell, I, I mean, I actually, I believe in omnipresence. I just think right. general omnipresence is, is an interesting fact about <laughs> God that, that most, uh, full developed religions have drawn the conclusion of. And it's, it tells, it's uninformative. It's like, right. of course, the concept of God entails that. So, uh, once you're a monotheist, you believe that. But right. the interesting thing is then the ways in which God wills to be pre- present in particular places and particular times. That's the, that's the, that's where the rub is. And your story here, your your discussion even of the shoes helps me see that for God to come to this paganized, I'll call him paganized <laughs> Jew, paganized Hebrew, and say to him, hey, guess what? I'm actually everywhere. Wouldn't address the problem. Because this is a man who's been displaced. And we often think when we undergo displacement, what we're looking for is the everywhereness of God. No, we're not. We're actually right. looking for the placement of God. Is God right. in this place right. where I mm-hmm. am? Now, the good news is maybe he was there all along, but that's right. the second step. The first step is for God to say, come into my house. This is my mountain. This is where I right. live. Even though you thought you were getting further and further away, you've actually now stumbled upon the very house of God. And... Over time, of course, he'll take up his residence in the people themselves and in, in the ta- in the tabernacle. But that's to jump ahead in the story. The story right now is for Moses to discover that, because in some ways, if the story of God with his people was centered in Canaan, you know, mm-hmm. 
and then there's this displacement into Egypt, mm-hmm. right? That right? the, the replacement of those people mm-hmm. back in that land goes through this kind of third intermediate right. space between the, the place of the wilderness. And you almost get the impression like God is kind of like, this is where I've been hanging out for the last 400 <laughs> years, kind of waiting for the right moment to bring right. them home. And maybe you thought I was back there in the land, which is how they, you, you, as you mentioned with, right. with Rebecca yeah. and her, or not Rebecca, uh, Leah and Rachel, Rachel, the gods, that the assumption would have been that, that they that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lives back in that right. land, not right. here in Egypt. So to be able to say, actually, no, I, I kind of, I never really was only in that land in the first place. This is actually my mountain. And eventually I'm going to elect Mount Zion, but that's a whole other story. Right. I don't know. I'm just riffing yeah. to kind of say and- there's a story of displacement. And then being, he even calls himself a so calls his names his son after sojourner Gershom, right? I've been a sojourner in mm-hmm. a foreign land to kind of say, God sort of meets him and welcomes him in, and that's before he names himself as I am the God of your father, God of right. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's already got his sandals off when he finds out who this is. Up until this point, it's just right a, a vision, right? You know, and it's also it's um. Very interesting. If we, as we look at Hebrew, the in, you know going back and forth between Elohim when Moses starts and talks to God or thinks about it, and Adonai, which is a more personal name for God mm-hmm. that the narrator uses. So the the way that Moses is learning about this God, yeah. right? So it's just a God, as as you mentioned before, it's just a God's mountain, you know, just any God. But Moses, through this conversation, Moses is learning about this God. So it's it's interesting. In the first seven verses, if you know you pay attention, you see that the word "see" or "sight" mm. or are the predominant words, so to speak. And then, even in the previous chapter, God saw the people Israel, right? Right. <laughs> so go ahead. But go ahead. But then. Uh, from eight on, it's more about the speaking and the hearing, right? Yeah. So it's like, Moses, you've kind of seen me, you've noticed, you've come to me. Now listen and, you know, speak too. So it's it's a very interesting progression in the chapter. From, yeah, I've heard you know, their cries. You go and say to them. Yep. Yeah. Say, say, say this. And Moses said to God, God said to Moses, right? So it's... Now it's more about, yeah. From seeing to saying. You're so right about the naming being so clever. The Mm -hmm. end of verse one, right? Mountain of God. And then it says the angel of Adonai. Yep. And then he looked and Moses said, looks at it. And then Adonai saw and turned that he turned Mm -hmm. aside and God called to him out of the bush as if like, well, now that I'm interacting with Moses, we got to call it God, right? Elohim, mm-hmm. and then he identifies himself as the God of your father Abraham. He was right. af- Moses was afraid to look at God mm-hmm. from Moses' yep. perspective, right? Verse seven. Then Adonai said, "Right." So when when the emphasis is on, yeah, we we miss it in the English, yeah, but the Hebrew is very clever. At least in at least in most translations, it switches from God to the all caps yeah. Lord, Lord, right? Yeah. So then that's our clue. If you learn to pay attention to that, of course, it gets tricky because the Lord doesn't sound like a personal name, but it's right. actually a personal name in the original. That's why I like to say Adonai. I noticed you. Right. Is that mm-hmm. your do you, what? Just fun fact. I've been asking mm-hmm. all my friends when they come on the show. Like, do you have a preferred kind of uh, substitute word when you? Encounter the tetragrammaton. Uh, well, I usually say Yahweh. 
Yahweh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but you know, prop, you know, the proper way is to say Adonai. You know, spell Elo- You know, Yahweh, but say Adonai. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm. A, I don't think you're going to sh- get struck down for saying it. And I say it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I've said it today, but I've been influenced by right. You know, the rabbis to right that, Not that to actually say that. the dis. It's less about worrying that God's going to get annoyed and more just like that the discomfort of saying something different than I see is itself a kind of spiritual experience. Do you know what I mean? Because it it makes you so much more attentive. So if I'm always like saying something different than my (laughs) eyes see, even in English, it's, it's a fun, it it creates the experience of making me a more attentive reader. So that's why I've kind of warmed up to the practice. And Adonai in English sounds like a proper name. It isn't (laughs) in the original, but I mean, it it sounds like a name. Like, Oh, that's true. Sounds like you know, somebody's name, right? <laughs> and, you, and you drop the because the definite article is a little confusing. The Lord sounds right. like a role. Anyway, I was just curious what you what your preferences were. <laughs> sounds like you're not that uh, you're not that uptight about it. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> like, That's not an issue. Yeah. I'm yeah, it's not the hill I'm dying on. Yeah, well, you know, yep. I'm an overthinker. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. That's fine. Awesome. Well, let's take a quick break and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, uh, Larissa Levicheva, and we're looking at Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And we're going to explore some sermon starters and as well as anything else that comes up as we go along. I just wanted to um, point out something before we go to sermon starters, if that's okay. Absolutely. In um, in uh, in verse eight, where God talks about the promised land, He says that it is a land that's full of milk and honey, mm-hmm. and this is how um, from now on promised land is characterized. But what's interesting is that milk is never a sign of fertility. Right. That's a sign of, you know, when you think, when you know that this phrase talks about how great and fertile yeah, and abounding it... in produce the land will be, milk is not a synonym for that. Interesting. It's only used once in Joel about the, for, to speak of fertility. So I uh, read a commentary by Victor Hamilton. It's an mm-hmm. amazing commentary on Exodus. And um, he suggests a different reading. And all you need to do is change, you know, one vowel. Uh, yeah. Uh, change the uh, change the vowel. And from milk, it will turn into fat. Oh. And um, the reason why he suggests that, and again, there are multiple, multiple interpretations of this particular phrase. And pretty much every commentator will have a opinion about this but he goes with um, changing it to fat because uh, fat uh, symbolizes the best of yeah right the, the fat the of fat, the land right the expression still and yeah. actually in like in numbers 1812 for example we read about the the best of wine and the best of oil but the best of that the phrase is actually the, the fat, fat of, of oh. the fat of oil, the fat of wine, which 
Of course. Which don't have fat in that sense, but yeah. Right. So I just... The so excess. That, and fat's the excess. Right. You know? And that's like, actually what you bring as a sacrifice to God. Right. It's the fact that it burns real nice. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah you the never, best part. And you never ask to bring milk. Yeah. Yeah, actually... Yeah. Oh, Cooking honey. things in milk is a big issue, actually. <laughs> actually, it's a problem. Right. Huh. So, so that whole phrase about cooking and not cooking a kid in his mother's milk? It might be fat. It's fat because milk and, uh, and meat would never come together right. for the Jews. So these are two completely separate yeah. kitchens. Right. So, so you wouldn't have even made the mistake if you're following all the other laws. You wouldn't even need that one in there. Right. Yeah. But you might cook it in its own fat because you use fat to cook everything. Right. So it just, it doesn't change anything. No, I love that you added that in it's though. A, it's a very interesting. Well, I was noted, I did just because I happen to be in numbers right now mm. uh, and just uh, in my own personal study and, and had uh, had seen the phrase that there's a moment with the spies where they say, it is not a land flowing with milk and honey. <laughs> they say that at one point right? Um, in the rebellion that uh, there's a, a questioning of, of that promise, which is first issued here. Right. And it's come to be the stock way of translating it. It sounds like it's because it's about, it's a, it's the way it had been fouled. Right. Okay. Um, That's true. But, uh, but there are other ways to vowel. These consonants, then it's not in the oldest texts. They wouldn't have had those vowels, and right. they didn't mm-hmm. have those vowels when they when they went <laughs> went into Greek. You know, which can sometimes explain some of the oddities of New Testament quotation. Right. Wow, that's it, that's the flowing with fat <laughs> and honey. And well, those was, are images of excess, then, because milk is kind of a basic substance, right? Sustenance. A, a kid needs milk to get started. It's just. Whereas honey is like, you don't need honey to survive. It's extra. Right. And you don't have to have fat to survive. You could just eat lean meat. Right. If you were a mm-hmm. hunter, you're usually not, you know, fat is only when you're sedentary and have agricultural animals that are overeating. Right. So these become both <laughs> symbols of excess now. Right. Which really fits so the, the verb landed. flowing. Right. So flowing with fat and honey actually makes the, the image actually work better right. in a way. Yep. Well, that's fun. Well, yeah. A little, a little exegetical <laughs> tag on at the beginning of her sermon. <laughs> like, this one's too good, John. I want to get this one. Yep. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. So where might you go with this if you were uh, preaching on this text? Or what advice would you give to those who might be preaching on this text? Well, I think uh, one of the possibilities would be to uh, to preach on how God substitutes fear with belief. Hmm. Right where Moses says, who am I? God says, I will be with you. And especially now when when we are all unsure of yeah. what the future holds or even what tomorrow holds, right? Even more unsure than before with this, you know, um, COVID crisis, yeah. right? Where people are really concerned about the future. So that's, I think that would be a valid way to um to interpret the text and to preach about the importance of belief it doesn't mean that the fear is no longer there right but it's not overpowering yeah and, the, and it sounds like the, the 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 key to the movement from fear alone to faith amidst fear mm-hmm. would be the promise of presence right right am i summarizing that Fair, Correct. That that's yeah. the key. It's not 
You don't have to be afraid of that. Oh, yeah, sure. Be afraid of Pharaoh. He's a pretty scary dude. Be right. afraid of me. I'm a little scary, God saying too, right? <laughs> right. But I'm going right. to be with you. And not with you doesn't just mean, again, the boring kind of omnipresence, but with you meaning on your side, not against you and right. against those who are against you, including right. Pharaoh, right? The right. with you has, yes, brings a lot with it. Right. And right. I will be who you need me to be in the moment. So yeah. that's another way, actually, some translate uh, the name of God. You know, I will, I will be, be who you need me to be. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, taking a little bit of, you know, interpretive. But in the there. context, it, yeah. it fits. Right. As opposed to like, why do you need to have my name so you can throw it around and appeal to my authority? No, no, no. I'm going to be with you. Right. So you don't need to say that you speak on my behalf because I'm going to be doing things for you. Right. <laughs> so it's, yeah. So the, uh, the matter of the name is not just the name. It's the presence. Yeah. That's, um, I don't think I saw that link as well as, as in this moment. That's really, really helpful. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's the presence because, as I said, in Genesis, that's what the patriarchs learn, right? That God is a personal God who mm-hmm. is wisdom. And he introduces himself again to Moses as the God uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the same presence is here. And then with the, what we also learn from the stories of the patriarchs is the provision and protection. Mm-hmm. Right, that's what they learned. It's a personal God. It's a God who provides and protects. So all of that is now right there for Moses. Three P's. It must be true, right? So. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Finally, I get something with three P's. With alliteration, yes. But no, it's crucial here. It's here. The provision is in the promise of of the uh, the flowing with fat and honey to come. Right. And um, the protection is implied in the I'm with you. Um, and the, the personal character is there in his identity and naming of himself as one in relationship right. uh, with the people um, who had gone before, with those who will come again, because he says, this is thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So there's already this forward, which I think in many ways we get, a, the, we're the most afraid. I remember, I, I'll never forget when I was experiencing, you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate this. Laura, I was, I was, uh, I was in a really bad writer's block with my dissertation. Eight months without a word. It was mm-hmm. awful. It was really terrible. Just a whole, just depression. It was really bad. It was the beginning of a lot of good things in my life because mm-hmm. I finally got some help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, at one point, I was talking with someone after I started getting help, and mm-hmm. he he said to me, yeah, he, he asked me to just describe, like, to get me to talk about my fears. Mm-hmm. He got me talking. And he got me to describe like, well, tell me what what were you afraid would happen? Like, you know, like, I don't know that I'd like, I hate checking my mail, my physical Mm -hmm. mail, mailbox at at school. And he's like, why? I'm like, well, I'm just so afraid I'm going to like open up. There's going to be this like note there saying that you're done. You're, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to work with you anymore from my advisor (laughs) who had nerd for me for eight months. (laughs) And, and. I mean, four of those were summer, so it's like, mm. <laughs> for me, he didn't even notice. It's like the normal run-of-the-mill delays that every dissertator has. When you're in it, right. you don't realize that. Right? right. And and he said, and it was so helpful, he just said, okay, play the rest of the tape. You're, you're right. pa-, and I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you're pausing it right there. And it's like implied that, and then the world ends. Mm-hmm. Like, keep playing the tape. I'm like, 
I guess I'd ask such and so another professor to, to work with me. He's like, okay. So, right. Like, and yeah, okay. I guess it wouldn't be the end. And like, <laughs> right. And it's, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of times we think when we're afraid, we're afraid of the future, but we're often not thinking about the future as a whole. It's this one next thing. That's what's terrifying us. Right. And in many ways, when God speaks to Moses here, he expands his perspective way back. God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right. 400 yeah. years ago, you know, right. and way in the, way in the future, you know, a whole generation later when you're going to enter into the promised land and for generations to come, you'll know me by this name. And in a way, all of that, then you can see that. And then it's like, he then comes back to the present tense and I'm with you. I don't know. I just think that a sermon that would really want to guide people into, into faith in the promise would want to engage in some expanding of the bigger picture. Right. You know, so I feel like that's what yeah. the Lord so, does to Moses here. Like in, uh, like in Psalm 23, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, verse 4, Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger because you are with me. There it is. Yeah. Right? So that's the same, the same idea of, you know, walking through the darkest valley. That's probably the valley that um, has a lot of shade, a lot of big stones in that setting where you know wild animals can be hiding Mm. to attack so basically it's a very insecure place but what gives me ability to keep on walking through that is that you're with me not that the danger is not there right 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 i fear no danger it's not like oh there is no danger now Oh, right. that's good. That's good. Because on social media now, right now, and some <laughs> preachers, a lot of people talking like faith versus fear, you know? Oh, And it's yeah. like, it's a false choice, actually. It's right. the faith is what is the divinely infused virtue by which we face fear. Right. Not by which we pretend there's nothing there to fear, you know? Right, um, right. Yeah, no, the fear is very real. Yeah, and, the Lord is your, yeah. I mean, it made me think of Psalm 121, if we're going to swap psalms, right? <laughs> I lift my eyes to the hills. From right. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your protector, your keeper, right? right? He's the shade at your right hand. There it is, the right. width. Right. Mm-hmm. So the sun shall not strike you by day, and the moon shall not by night. Right. Lord will keep you from my evil. Will keep your, keep you, keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in, which is kind of right. Moses-like, actually. From right. this time forth and forevermore. Right. Yeah. So it's and more. Right. <laughs> Psalm seventy-seven came to mind too. That when the shepherd language, he led them like right. a shepherd. Through the wilderness. Um, Victor Hamilton, actually, sorry, again, no, a little bit away from the sermon, maybe, but Whatever. he um, he suggests that Moses is the first shepherd who is called by God to do something else, huh. right? To lead his people. We see the same we with have shepherds David. before, but they're not, they're not summoned into a different role. Right. They stay shepherds. Right. Ah. David, right? The yeah. shepherd becomes king. Amos, yes. a shepherd becomes a prophet. And he even uh, draws parallel, and I'm just saying it for what it is, not suggesting anything else. But 
in the New Testament, it's the same idea, but now it's fishermen. Right. Right? So, you know, you will no longer be, you know, fishing for fish, but for men, right? So it's, again, taking the uh, very people from whatever they're doing into a different occupation, so to speak. Oh, that's perfect. So it's Moses in the Torah, David in the former prophets, Amos in the latter prophets. Yeah, so it's a very interesting good. move, right? That that we can see through through the Bible. Well, I mean, that's relevant to just even pitch that there's a whole other sermon here, especially if someone is. I mean, if you're if you're preaching, depends on the setting, right? But I mm. mean, this is such a great call sermon to right. talk about, especially the excuses we make. Right? To, right. to to build off of this text. And that could be yeah. actually another uh, sermon idea is it's, you know, be vulnerable before God. And he's you not know, rebuked for these. Right. Never. Moses, uh, God tells him, how dare you? Yeah. Don't talk to me like that. Right. He keeps answering questions. Not the way Moses would expect. Right. right? right. What's your name? Uh, this. Right. I will be with you. So he still doesn't know the name or... Right, so lean into your ignorance. Right, right. it's kind of like you don't have to know everything to have this conversation right. with God. Yeah. So you know, being God is not afraid. God can take anything that we throw at Him. Right, we can ask any question that will not belittle Him or offend Him. Or I think mm-hmm. quite often we are afraid to come to God. Yeah. And be vulnerable, because you know that's God. Right, we need to respect and. Um, be a certain way, do a certain thing. But being vulnerable is perfectly fine. Yeah. Because Moses gets his... The presence of God calls for humility. And in some ways, I think, I kind of want to, I don't know, I want to toy with this. The humility is seen in his, his posture, his hiding of his face, his taking off of the sandals. Sometimes I've found that in my own prayer life, when I engage in some very mm-hmm. physical and the physicality mm-hmm. matters, right? Some mm-hmm. physical acts of submission, even just the choice to have a, a time and place where I pray every day, right? That is holy, right? Set mm-hmm. aside, right? I don't do anything else there. You know, I mean, you're here in my study. You know, I pray over there at the piano, partially because I just don't want to always be at the same place at my mm-hmm. desk or my chair. You know, to have us. A ground of holiness, as it were, you know, <laughs> but to kneel, you know, and not because it's some kind of magical thing. God could care less in a way. Right. That's the whole point. Even in the ancient world, you would bow so that they would lift up your head so that you would right. then be spoken of like a, fr- spoken to like a friend. But sometimes when I physically humble myself, as it were, I then actually feel more emboldened to just say whatever I want to God. Do you know what I mean? Because, right. Because yeah. it's like, I'm, I'm acknowledging that, you know, before and after this conversation, you're running the show. But during this little period, you apparently want my advice. So let me give you some advice on how to run the world and how to run my life. Because right. I've already clearly signaled in my heart and in my physical presence that, you know, whatever answer you give, I'll, I'll submit to. But I'm going to quarrel with you. I'm going to wrestle with you about, about right. I'm going to raise my objections. And I think there's a, yeah, I've never even thought of this as a, as a, just a really powerful prayer text but it really is in the sense of god inviting him the hospitality of god 
and God speaking and then him asking his questions. And it's a genuine conversation. God isn't like, right. I don't want to talk mm. about that. You know, yeah. he, he actually. I have an agenda. Let's yeah. Not, listen. But yeah, it's, it's a conversation. He is the God who hears, not only the God who speaks, you know, he really right. does hear. He really does listen and respond right. to what Moses has to say to him. I think a, a sermon on humble vulnerability or something right. like that. Could be really powerful. That's a really yeah. great idea. I like that and idea. If we go back to well, that's the, like three sermon ideas now. Go ahead. We can have uh, four fear, more if you, you know, want. Like fear and belief yeah. idea. You know, we um, God ta- God tells Moses that I have heard the cries, right? So the cries yeah. have been going on for for a long period of time. So it's not that God has not heard them before and just now, like two minutes ago, heard them. Mm-hmm. But the time has not come, right? So Quite often we have to live with this fear, mm. right? And trust in God's presence. But, you know, it will in, you know, in um, Ecclesiastes, right? 3.11, it says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. In its time. So with Moses, we see that the time has come. Yeah. Right. So I think it's the, the idea of, you know, living with, because Moses will come back to this mountain that God gives him a sign about in a year or even longer, right? Yeah. So he has to live with that, you know, fear of the Pharaoh because Pharaoh can kill him anytime. Mm-hmm. Fear of being rejected by the people, which he, yeah, which they start with initially, right? So he has to live with that, remembering that God is with him, right? So both things that, and then later on, when uh, God gets upset with the uh, Israelites for the golden calf, right? And says, just just go, I will not go with you. And he said, Moses says, no, we don't, we don't need this, right? If you're not yeah. coming with us, if your presence is not with us, we don't need yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. So it's, we don't he want has to learn you. that, yeah. right? He has to learn that, that that's true. It's a promise, but that it's actually working promise, yeah. right? Through that year and some time, who knows? Yeah, I have yeah. a little sign. I have it at my <laughs> other office at, at the seminary building, but little thing that says, <laughs> consistency plus time equals trust, you know? Right. So trust, another word for faith, is built right. by this consistency on God's behalf. Over time, it has to keep happening. Right. Then the right. trust builds. So to imagine that, oh, now he has faith and everything's done. It's like, no, this is just the beginning of a, of a pretty long faith uh, development right. journey. Um, but it is a crucial beginning and a great place to start and a great, yep. yeah, it'd be a fun sermon. Well, those are, those are a couple <laughs> different sermon ideas. And any of them, this theme that we talked about earlier about displacement could be woven in. Right. Because the language of displacement really also fits our time that uh, a lot of us are experiencing a lot of displacement from work, displacement mm-hmm. from our usual place of our usual patterns of life. Um, the churches are being displaced from their normal ways of gathering. And then this kind of moment of opportunity that comes in the midst of that displacement, that in some ways readies Moses for the journey, you know, Anyway, I, I just thought I'd do a quick mm-hmm. callback and say right. that, that that could be woven into any of these right. sermon ideas. Mm-hmm. The calling sermon, the the, the fear and faith sermon. And 
Awesome. I will be with you. I will be with you. Well, I think that was good. Sound good? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say thanks uh, to all our listeners as always. Thanks to Laura for just giving time to the text and to uh, this conversation and to all our listeners. Uh, thanks to Todd and Eric for the great production work they do. Can't imagine doing this without them. And thanks to Tom for donating the theme music. And with that said, uh, have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>